You're listening to Tripper Heads Talking Tea with Aaron Bush. On this podcast, from riches to rags, the tale of the pandemic in Hong Kong. Aaron Bush talks with University of Hong Kong Chair Professor of Epidemiology, Ben Cowling. Welcome to this episode of Tripper Heads Talking Tea with me, Aaron Bush. Every now and again, I'm going to chat with those in the news here in Hong Kong and not only talk about the issues of today, but delve into the backstories, both about the topic at hand and my guest. And our discussions will be over a cup of tea or coffee at a location of the guest's choosing. Today, we are at Recharge Cafe in Cyberport and I chat with a man who many in Hong Kong came to know during the COVID-19 pandemic me included, for his analysis and at times contrasting opinions on the pandemic strategy in Hong Kong. He is the Chair Professor of Epidemiology in the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, Professor Ben Cowling. Ben, welcome. Hi, it's a pleasure to be chatting with you today, Evan. Yeah, we haven't seen each other for a little while. It's a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. I haven't <laughs> seen you since 2022. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll talk about the pandemic, a topic close to both our hearts for three years. When did you first start hearing about the new virus, which we eventually called COVID-19? Well, there were rumours going round at the end of 2019 about something new in Wuhan, some new kind of pneumonia. There was a report to an international mailing list for, for outbreak alerts and whatnot. We didn't think it was anything to worry about. And then probably early 2020, we did start to hear more concerning rumours that it might be something like SARS. It might be spreading. It might not be. Cases were linked to the market. And then in the news, if you remember, uh, around that time, there started to be news reports of cases um, linked to the the Huanan market, the the seafood market. And it was not clear in the early days uh, what, what exactly was going on. I remember with my colleagues writing a, a, a scientific article trying to lay out what we knew in mid-January 2020. And when we started writing the article, we had the view that it was probably zoonotic. It was probably animals infecting humans somehow or, or being affected from the environment. It wasn't really spreading from one person to another. And within a few days, by the time we finished the article, we'd actually changed our mind because the evidence was building up from day to day. There were cases outside China. Uh, there, there were worrying reports of clusters and whatnot. And so I would say by, by the third week of January, we were very concerned. Uh, about the situation and I started calling friends in other parts of the world to to alert them that uh, they need to keep an eye on this because it could be coming in their direction soon as well. Now it's fair to say most countries first response to the pandemic was shambolic. We had US President Trump saying only one case and a general sense worldwide that this wasn't our problem. It'll be like SARS-1 that you mentioned and just stay within the Asian region etc. But we had the double whammy of coming off the back of the 2019 protests here in Hong Kong. We had the early hospital staff strike over not closing the border. What was it like for you and the staff in those formative months? And were we too slow to react in hindsight? Well, I think that's that's a long time ago now. It feels like a really long time. So it is difficult to remember exactly what was happening from day to day, but I do remember the nurses' strike uh, about closing the border, which turned out to be an important measure for Hong Kong to close the border with mainland China. I remember the initial, 
recommendations almost against wearing a face mask. Not not uniquely in Hong Kong, actually. A lot of places around the world were recommending against wearing face masks. Hong Kong may have been the only place in the world that had a law against wearing a face mask, but uh, most places in the world were, were recommending their, their populations not to, to wear masks. They said they did, it wasn't necessary, and one of the reasons for that was that they the the, the scarce stockpile should be safe for healthcare workers, which I which I understand, but uh, recommending it against it, and then a few months later, suddenly recommending for it or even mandating it was, was quite a U-turn in, in some other parts of the world. In terms of the other aspects of the early response, I think we were learning from going along. I don't think any country really was was uh, fully prepared in those early days to respond. But I think we had the right concept that we needed to buy time. We couldn't just let it go and see what happened. We had to try at least to stop it and learn more about the infection, the severity, what impact it might have, so that we could then make a decision whether to, 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 to really try to hold it back or at least to, to, to have a, uh, a better plan in place to, to manage what, what might happen. We know with respiratory infections, we can't stop them forever. We can't hold them back forever. But maybe by buying time, we could at least mitigate, at least we could soften the blow. Tripper heads talk and tea. So you're in the public health section of HKU. There's also microbiology, there's clinical medicine. Were the teams at HKU all on the same track and all working together in those first few months? Uh, I... I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think we were aware of what other groups were doing, but we didn't have a a lot of overlap in terms of our interests. Um, and so I, I, I don't remember working particularly closely with with those other academic groups, either in Hong Kong University or in Chinese U as well, or other universities in Hong Kong. A bit later, that, that changed to some extent. There was a little bit more collaboration, but in the early days, there was also a bit of a, a kind of academic race to try and find out things sooner and be the one to, to report it. Like, I suppose, journalists always try to, to get ahead of the, the, uh, the others to, to get the scoop. And so I, with, with that in mind, I think a lot of academic groups in Hong Kong were, were almost competing to, to be first, which is not, not saying that in a bad way. I mean, I think that, that pushes the science forward as quickly as possible. Um, looking back, I can't think of areas where it, was, it, you know, it would have been even better if we'd, if we'd had links with other departments in the university because the things we were doing were, were public health focused as it was. So we move to mid and late 2020, where we've got a bit more understanding of what's going on and the pandemic response from the Hong Kong government. It seemed reasonably well received by the public back in that first year. People were doing the right thing, were wearing masks and following the rules. We had three waves in 2020. I went back and had to check my uh, data sheet last night doing my research because, like you said, so much happened in three years trying to remember exactly what happened when. But they were really tiny waves. But remember how panicky we were about those ones. I think the maxed out one day case number was 145. Uh, But that seemed to cause a fair bit of panic and and the rules got a lot stricter from then on. Well, that, that's right. I think in the early days, the response was evolving. But we'd seen by, say, March and April and May, we'd seen what happened in other countries with the virus. We knew that if, it, if transmission wasn't stopped, then the numbers of cases would increase and increase and increase. And you'd, you'd go from a small number to a medium number to a large number within a fairly short space of time. And unfortunately, with, with the COVID virus, it, it's very nasty, particularly in older people. And I remember in New York, they had a very large number of deaths. I think in April 2020, it was thousands, tens of thousands even maybe. And so we, we knew the threat posed by COVID. We knew 
we we couldn't let that happen. We had to at least hold it back as long as possible, as long as we could. Um, it was too early to think about vaccines or antivirals and, and when they might appear, but we knew that at least we, we didn't want to let it spread if we could stop it. And I think that the response was reasonably measured uh, in that first year. Um, I, I would certainly, looking back, I would think about some of the elements of the, the, the measures that could have been done a little bit better, some tweaks, perhaps you could say. But by and large, I think that the, the concept was very reasonable. Um, and, and a lot of the policies made a lot of sense. When I look around the region, Singapore also did a good job in the early days. Uh, other Asian countries did a good job in the early days. Uh, I think other places struggled a little bit more to get on top of things early and struggled as a, as, as a consequence. And I think it was only a little bit later in the pandemic that, that we, 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 we stopped doing as well. I think the first year was, was pretty good, actually, for in terms of public health in Hong Kong. I mean, I know that the policies had enormous other consequences, but uh, give, given the severity of COVID and uh, what, what we understand would have happened in terms of the number of hospitalizations, the number of very severe infections, the number of deaths even, uh, so something had to be done. That, that the government couldn't let a, a large number of deaths occur in 2020. You're listening to Tripperhead's Talking Tea with Aaron Bush. So let's back up a bit. For a decade now, you've been the head of epidemiology at Hong Kong University in the public health area. And in 2021, you became a chair professor. Let's find out a bit more about Ben Cowling. You didn't do your PhD in epidemiology, did you? When and where did you get your PhD to become a doctor professor? So I studied for my PhD in statistics at the University of Warwick. It was a PhD in, in a type of medical related statistics using data to answer questions about medicine and health um, and after that I worked briefly in Imperial College London on, uh, on some research on HIV treatments and then I came to Hong Kong in 2004 as a postdoctoral fellow so I, I finished my PhD I was doing my postdoctoral training um, and when I arrived in Hong Kong I wasn't quite sure what I'd work on but fairly soon I got involved in analysis of some data from SARS. So I came in 2004, SARS was in 2003, but there were still questions to answer about what had happened and, and some things about the epidemiology of SARS, not only in Hong Kong, but, but in other parts of the world that were affected. And uh, from there, just, just uh, worked hard on, on various infections and uh, pursued an academic career here. Is statistics a normal way to get into epidemiology? Obviously, a lot of numbers involved mm. in both. So epidemiology is a very multidisciplinary field because to be an epidemiologist, you need a lot of expertise in a lot of different areas. You need to know something about medicine. You need to know something about uh, numbers, about the statistics, maybe about psychology in some cases, maybe about economics in some cases. So it, there's, there's people from all kinds of disciplines mixed together in, in epidemiology and in, in the School of Public Health. Statistics is a, is a good way in because we handle a lot of numbers. And for me, myself, having the, the toolbox of different methods available to analyze data has been very useful. But the people that I work with have all the other different skills as well. So it's really a collaborative area as well where, where we benefit from having people from different backgrounds to work together. You mentioned after you did your PhD at Warwick University, you did one year at Imperial College in London. Mm. That, was up to, that took you up to 2004 and then you moved to Hong Kong. Mm. Was it a decision that you looked and went, I just saw SARS occur in Asia, Hong Kong was doing the greatest research. Was that why you came to Hong Kong? No, it was just a bit of serendipity, actually. I mean, I was thinking about what to do next. I, I, I didn't see the Imperial job as, as something I wanted to, somewhere I wanted to be for a long time. 
Um, and there was a job opportunity at Hong Kong. They had a link with Imperial at the time. So there was an internal email saying there's these positions available. Uh, I remember sending an email to inquire, maybe with my CV, as you do, you say, you know, I've seen the advert. Do you think I'd be suitable? I think I sent that probably in September 2003. Didn't hear anything radio silence so okay um, never mind um, and then at probably March 2004 I got a response finally from the professor uh, someone that, that, that everyone in Hong Kong would, would know their name um, saying um, sorry for the delay replying we've been very busy and you know would you still be interested and I was here in Hong Kong on holiday uh, at that exact moment so I replied not only am I still interested but I'm actually <laughs> here in person I could come anytime in the next seven days to, to see you in person if you like. And so I did. Came in for the interview with two, uh, two senior academic staff, talked mostly about the Rugby Sevens and, uh, and schools in the UK, um, and a little bit about the work I'd been doing and what I was interested to do, and they, they offered me the job. So uh, it was really serendipity, and I'm very glad that it all worked out because I'm, I'm really, really happy to, to have been here for the last 20 years. It's been a fantastic place to work, and it, it still will be in the future. Um, but uh, no regrets whatsoever about, about coming here 20 years ago. That really was lux of fortune that you were here at the time. You didn't name who you were liaising with, but I was going to ask, did you know any of the big names in the Hong Kong University before you took the job or you just basically wanted the job? It was, like you said, serendipity, and then you learned the big names of epidemiology and, and microbiology, and they're all based at Hong HKU. You know, that's it. So I, I haven't actually thought about it that much. I mean, I knew Hong Kong's a re really a, a big university in, in Asia, Hong Kong University. But in the specific field, I, mean, I was still very junior at that moment. I was, you know, writing my first paper at the time. And now I have hundreds of papers to my name. And so I was not, you know, I was very naive at that time, very inexperienced and really glad that it all worked out so well. I mean, there are some very big names, including yourself now after the pandemic mm -hmm. as the Chair Professor of Epidemiology. There's Gabriel Leung was there, uh, Professor Yuan Kwok Leung was there. Is there still, um, who else, Leo Poon mm -hmm. is there? I mean, these are huge names in, mm -hmm. um, in the field of, especially when there's a pandemic going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 20 years ago. So the, the, some of the work on SARS was done by some of these people. Uh, Malik Pierce, obviously, was a very big name. And then uh, uh, Professor Tony Headley, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. So he was really instrumental as well uh, in, the, in, in, in the School of Public Health in, in Hong Kong. Not really an infectious disease expert, but uh, really a, a, a very strong figure in public health. So I, I, yeah, I landed on my feet, I suppose you could say. I mean, I came a little bit blind to, to what I was getting into, but it's all worked out really well. And I think... One of the reasons the job was being advertised, I found out subsequently, I found out later, was because the Hong Kong government and Hong Kong University had decided they want to put more resources into infectious diseases. Before SARS, there was a view from many scientists around the world that infectious diseases didn't pose much of a threat anymore. We have to spend more effort on cancer and heart disease and diabetes, all of that. Um, infectious diseases won't be a big problem. But uh, there's a few things happened, uh, bird flu and then also SARS made people rethink that. And, and there was investment in infectious disease research here in Hong Kong. I came as part of that and still here 20 years later. And, and one of the reasons why Hong Kong had a, a, a really good response to COVID in the first year is because of that capacity we had with microbiology is very good. Infection control is very good in the hospitals. The labs are very good. Public health is very, very strong as well. Tripperheads talk and tea. So 2022, 
The government was confident their defences against COVID-19 was solid. The Health Secretary, Sophia Chan, went on Bloomberg to say she thought they had the virus under control. How and why did it go wrong? I think in Hong Kong, we were overconfident, or some people at least were overconfident on our ability to stop Omicron. The measures that we'd been using in 2020 and 2021 were good enough to stop that strain of the virus, the original strain. But as the virus gradually evolved around the world, when you remember Alpha was in the UK first and details where, and Beta somewhere, and Gamma and Delta in India, and then Omicron. And as the virus evolved progressively, it got more and more transmissible, and that means more and more difficult to stop. And with Omicron in Hong Kong in, in January 2022, it just proved too difficult. No matter the stringency of the measures that were used, it was just not possible to stop it. And actually, if you remember later last year, later in 2022, in mainland China, they also had trouble stopping Omicron. Uh, they had outbreak after outbreak in different parts of the, the country. Eventually, they had to also draw a line and say that they, they just can't keep going. They're going to have to change strategy. And in December, they, they ultimately relaxed their policies. So it, it was just too tough. And I think looking back in, in hindsight, we have to say we, we could have anticipated a point in time where it becomes too difficult to stop it, too costly to stop it. And at the same time, as the vaccine coverage gets higher and higher, there's less rationale for stopping the infection anyway, because if there's a virus going around that's killing people, we got to do something about it. But if there's a virus going around that's causing mostly coughs and colds, I mean, we've got to ask what's the rationale to lock down the city to stop people from getting coughs and colds. So you've got to think about what's the right time for transition rather than saying, you know, we're going to keep it back at all costs. No one's ever going to get a cough and cold ever again in their life. Um, we've got to, you know, find a balance and say we've also got to maintain economic activity. We've also got to let kids go back to school. And I, I think, unfortunately, in, in the middle of 2021 onwards, that there should have been more thought perhaps about when would be a sensible time to transition away from the containment policies which have worked so well to something a little bit more sustainable. And I wrote about that with Professor Gabriel Leung and, and other people wrote about it as well. Um, other local academics, I wasn't the only one saying that. I remember P.O. Ho did interviews every day on radio where he was saying something similar. But uh, unfortunately, there was politics enmeshed in that and, and other issues as well. And the vaccine uptake in older people wasn't as high as in younger people. I think even in January 2022, that despite having vaccines available for almost a year, only about a quarter to a half of older people, depending on their age, were, were vaccinated. And that's really much lower than, than most other developed locations around the world where, where vaccine had been available, freely available for, for that period of time. You're listening to Tripperhead's Talking Tea with Aaron Bush. On vaccines. Oh, actually, I'm gonna back up a bit. We talked about that there was alpha um, strain, beta, mm. and delta, mm. which seemed, at least reading the news, seemed to be the most deadly, but I don't know whether it was, cause right. it was, it was pre-vaccine or it was mm. just a strain. So that was a strain that was just very, very nasty. So, yeah, the people have been looking and seeing, you know, it, it, in, a, in someone who's had no previous infection, no vaccination, whatever, what's the relative severity of these different strains? And Delta comes out as the worst in that kind of analysis. But obviously, if people are vaccinated, then that's going to bring the severity down. So, so in a sense, Delta didn't have as much impact as it might have because uh, some, some parts of the world were vaccinated by then. And then Omicron is actually not that different to the original strain. It's a little bit milder, not a lot milder. The reason that Omicron hasn't had the same health impact as, as the earlier strains of the virus is because of the high vaccine coverage or 
in, in, in maybe South Africa, other parts of the world where, where they didn't stop the initial waves, they got a lot of natural immunity by the time Omicron appeared. And so either way, either if you've got immunity in your population from vaccination or from previous waves of infection, then Omicron turns out to be milder. And now it, a year later than that, infections are even milder now on average because of the immunity that's been building up, not only from vaccinations, but also from infections that have occurred in the past. Just talking about Delta then, you know what it reminded me of? The diplomat? No. Go on. Hamsters. Oh, yes. Do you remember oh, the hamsters? Yeah, of course. It's really sad. Really sad. I mean, that was such an unusual uh, occurrence that, that Delta spread from hamsters imported from the Netherlands to the pet shop staff and to, uh, there were a few other cases, I think, linked with that outbreak. Um, I don't think hamster to human transmission occurred very frequently, maybe more than once, but, but not a lot. But there was certainly some human to human transmission as well. Um, and we've, we've done so much in Hong Kong. We closed the borders, if you remember. So it was very difficult for, for humans to get into Hong Kong, very difficult for the virus to get into, into the community through, through humans. But it got in through, through imported hamsters. And it all, that also reminds me, talking about things it reminds, you, reminds me of the fish in, in mainland China where they blame Norwegian salmon at one point for one of their outbreaks because the virus was surviving on the frozen salmon because it can, of course, survive in, in, in freezing temperatures. You're listening to Tripper Head's Talking Tea podcast with Aaron Bush and Ben Cowling. It's um, hard to believe that it's only six, seven months ago that the mainland and Hong Kong hmm. were still testing boxes. Right. Uh, mail and, and food, frozen food coming through. To, yep. Uh, I mean, uh, did we get to the point where we just kind of were doing so much in Hong Kong and the mainland as well that we lost track of, of the ultimate goal? It just seemed like we got to a point where we were doing everything, throw the kitchen sink in there and see what sticks. Well, I, I, I just remember in terms of quarantine of, of arriving travelers, if you remember, it was at 1.21 days. I did 21 days in a hotel actually in 2021. Um, the quarantine period was getting longer at, at that time because of the argument that we, we can't even risk a one in a thousand, one in 10,000 occurrence of a very long incubation period that the person comes in and they don't test positive until they've left. But what hadn't been recognized is the, the kind of other rare possibilities or unusual possibilities. We didn't even conceive of, of, of hamsters. Is it Rumfeld that talks about the known knowns, the unknown knowns and the, the, the unknown unknowns? We, you just can't conceive of that kind of thing happening. But it does mean that there's a limit to how stringent is, is you can be in terms of quarantining humans because you've got to think about the other, the other possible pathways. I was always concerned about transmission in quarantine hotels. I said that so many times in 2021. Um, and it, that was what kicked off the fifth wave with BA2. It was transmission in a quarantine hotel from one guest to another. And then the, 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 the infected person was at the end of their quarantine, so they left. And that's how it got into the community. Um, hotels were not designed for that in, in, in the long term. It, it was not... We weren't going to keep the virus out forever. But the, the rationale for having such a strong policy on quarantine is that when there's an outbreak in the community, it's really difficult to stop. And so you've got to try and control it at the border first. So if you can, if you can stop it from getting in, then, then you've got an easier job. But uh, yeah, it, it was uh, very strange in those days, I remember. They're all flooding back to me now. And most of the waves we can put down to one of those abnormalities like i'm thinking right. now that okay we had the hamsters but we also had the dance cluster right who was 
post-quarantine had been out for a few days, and I think there was 14 days hotel quarantine for that one, and then she managed to infect someone who infected them. We had that huge dance cluster that was... And, and I mean, it was, it's, and then we had the hotel cross-quarantine. We had ones where it was going up the, the, the drainage pipes. That's right. So a lot of interesting stories, and I hope that at some point these will get written down because I think there's that it's interesting to 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 know all of these these things that happened. If if ever in the future we we have a pandemic again, we're going to need similar tools again, most likely. Hopefully not for the period of time that we had them for COVID, but uh, I think public health measures will be needed. And so thinking about the more more efficient ways to implement some of these things, what to watch out for, what are the kind of the, the the back doors that we need to to be alert for for the virus to to to, to escape the measures yeah i mean it's, it's uh, a lot of memories coming back evan on part two of from riches to rags you said how we kept changing the goalposts we didn't have a plan do you have a theory on why the government did not have a set plan like most countries did for opening up well i think their plan was not to open up Tripperhead's Talking Tea is written, produced, and published by Aaron Bush for Tripperhead Limited. Additional voices by Jade Bush. Copyright 2023.